Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. I just to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming. On ABC Radio. What the authors of the Oru Statement, and, and now those of us who are saying, look, this, is, this voice is something that we've got to take, take forward, we're saying, well, this is the first step towards some fairer, more equitable arrangement where we as First Peoples, First Nations, can have a say about our own existence without upsetting the whole apple cart. Voice Treaty Truth, the Implications of Constitutional Reform. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Australians will soon be asked whether Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people should be recognised in the Constitution through an Indigenous voice to Parliament. The proposal has moved a step closer after legislation passed the House of Representatives. The bill still needs to be dealt with by the Senate before the federal government is expected to set a date for the poll later this year. It's clear there are a range of different views on the proposal, with both yes and no campaigns gaining momentum and consultation and debate happening across communities and in the media. The Uluru Statement from the Heart calls for voice, treaty and truth, reforms based on First Nations justice and self-determination. But what does this mean in practice? Dr Tony McAvoy, SC, is a barrister and Australia's first Indigenous senior counsel. Tony is currently co-senior counsel assisting the Uruk Justice Commission in Victoria and was formerly the acting Northern Territory Treaty Commissioner. He joined Professor Robin Quiggan, Professor Lyndon Coombs, Dr Harry Hobbs and Professor Verity Firth to explore the implications of constitutional reform and feasibility of the voice proposal. Let's listen in now and we begin with Professor Robin Quiggan as she outlines the objectives of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. There's a lot of talk about this being a race issue and that this will create racial division. I want to begin by framing this. This is an issue about us as First Peoples. The status of peoples is recognised at international law, has been for a long time, and Indigenous peoples have been understood to have the status as First Peoples around the world. And I think, you know, our Vice-Chancellor just spoke about some of the battles, the battle of colonisation, the process of colonisation, that has meant that that's had to be something that international law has thought about. And in fact, it thought about it at the time it was occurring. And there were rules, there were international law rules around the process of colonisation. So European nations, Britain as it was then, or the UK as it was then, was meant to follow particular rules as they set out Uh, and colonise the world. It seems a strange thing to talk about now, but that is what it was. And what we know here is that those rules were not followed. We know that for a lot of reasons. The Mabo decision attempted to wrangle with that and came to a sort of fairly pragmatic answer to that. But what we have here in this nation is peoples and first peoples where the status is not organised, settled or understood in any reasonable way. The Uluru Statement is the most recent version, really, of our, as a nation, of First Peoples and as a nation, us trying to come to terms with that unfinished business. And it comes, and I think there's a very good list of the initiatives that were taken by Aboriginal people around the country 
beginning shortly after invasion in Tasmania. If you have a look at the website, it's a really extensive, and I knew a fair bit about this, I thought. There's a whole lot of initiatives that I did not know about. We are cultural people, we are governance people. So when our place was invaded, when we were faced with overwhelming force, we began doing what any people will do, which is trying to negotiate and petition, and we began that from the beginning, from the very, very beginning. And in that website, you'll see multiple examples of the ways that we have done that over the years. The Yirrkala Bark petition, the Barunga Statement most recently, the initiatives in relation to constitutional recognition, the many joint parliamentary inquiries. There's a lot that's gone on that has... Trying to answer that question, find a way to answer that question. And the Uluru Statement is the most recent of those. Lots of you will have seen the Uluru Statement, but I'm just going to read you the part that is most relevant. I think there's a lot in it, but this is the piece that I think we're talking about today. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. Makarata is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. We seek a Makarata Commission to supervise a process of agreement-making between governments and First Nations and truth-telling about our history. We have, over generations and generations, in our capacity as First Peoples, been negotiating with local council, with state governments, with early day colonisers, with federal governments, using the international human rights system. Because we are cultural people, we are governance people, and so we use those mechanisms to try and come to a place where this country, this nation state and us can recognise each other as distinct peoples. So this is the most recent version of that ongoing activity on our part. And I'll say one last thing about that. So it is not just us that need this to be a remedy or a way forward with this. It's the nation state that did not take this country according to the rules of the time. So we need a way to make peace with that. Not all of us think this is the ultimate answer, but it is the peace on the table at the moment and we do need to learn more about it and we do need to talk to each other about it. And there is an urgency about it now. Thanks. Thanks, Robin. So I'm going to ask a question now to all of you, and we might start with you, Lyndon. What does Indigenous sovereignty and self-determination mean? What does it mean to you? It means us acting in a way that is culturally appropriate. It means doing the things that we want to do. For me, I always try to think about it in practical terms of what does that look like? And I think we're going to go through some of that through this process, which is how do we talk to each other? How do we relate to each other? How do we negotiate between nations? How do we set up systems of government and the way in which we want to live, really, and not be looking to the government for permission? So that's what it means to me. It's a long road to go. Tony? Indigenous sovereignty is a vexed issue in Australia at the moment. We have 
Many people suggesting that the uh, voice to Parliament will interfere with in, uh, Indigenous sovereignty, but my experience in treaty work and in native title work tells me that my people, the Wiri-speaking people of Wangan and Yagalingu country, we're the only people that can speak for our country. I am only obliged under law to my people. If I've stepped wrong, I'm accountable to my elders. Anybody wants to speak about my country, they have to come to us. That's what our sovereignty means. And everybody I've worked with around the country in every state and territory except Tasmania says the same thing. You've got to come through us. We're the bosses here. That's how First Peoples express sovereignty. And you can see that that expression of sovereignty comes into a direct conflict with the sovereignty that's asserted by the British, which Robbins properly said is a flawed assertion of sovereignty. How then do we deal with this ongoing and proper assertion of continuing Indigenous sovereignty in the face of an overwhelming force that says we now make the rules here? How do we do that? We can approach it from a very principled position, but in the end, there's going to have to be some adjustment on our part and on the government's part to accommodate both systems. One way in which that's done, which uh, I often talk about and I'll just briefly uh, draw your attention to, is, is through changing the legal system. I've been watching closely the work that's being done in New Zealand at Aotearoa, where they have a process of indigenisation of their law degree, where they teach young lawyers and propose to teach the profession how to understand Māori law and how the two fit together. And their equivalent of the Australian Law Reform Commission, the, the Law Commission, is doing a study right now on how those law systems can fit together in what they say is a bidural system. Now, we're a long way from that, but that's what recognition and observance and respect for Indigenous sovereignty means. It means understanding we've got law systems of our own. We operate according to our ancient law and there needs to be an accommodation in this country of our sovereignty if the country is to live and act and go forward in a respectful manner. A lot of people see that as the Australian nation having to give something away. I say, you should be grateful. We're giving something to you. We're inviting you to see the world through a, a, a lens that is very deeply connected to the country and something that you, to date, have really not grasped. So that's how I see uh, Indigenous sovereignty and um, we'll have some discussion about how we might be able to deal with that in the Constitution later, I suspect. That's correct. So, Harry, Indigenous sovereignty and self-determination. Yeah, I think they were really great answers, uh, all, all of them. Uh, I'm, I'm a non-Indigenous Australian, and so a lot of the way that I think about this is guided by listening to people, obviously, and listening and reading and, and, and having conversations with people who are experts in this. I think the... If I can just pull out two things that are, I think are connected between the answers. The first one is that... Indigenous sovereignty, it's a starting point for discussion and engagement, right? It, it's sort of saying that this is two authorities as such that might claim some ground, or some land, essentially. Uh, one is based on 65,000 years of continuing connection and governance and, and that complex system that has developed to, to live on this country for so long and care for this country. And the other one is based on 
uh, an invasion in just over 200 years ago, which, as Robin was saying, was set up you know, under, illegally under the rules that the British themselves developed. So they didn't even follow their own legal system, right? But uh, the, the starting point then is engagement, and it's about dialogue and discussion. And so it shouldn't seem to be scary, but a lot of people, a lot of non-Indigenous Australians think of it as scary. And, and we see things like people saying sovereignty never ceded, and, and some indigenous, non-Indigenous Australians think, well, what does that mean? How does that relate to what I'm dealing with in my life right now? But I really do think it's just it's an invitation for dialogue and discussion. And again, that is what The Voice is about. It's about trying to start conversations, start discussions. The other key thing I would say is that we're very familiar in Australia with uh, forms of divided sovereignty. We're right here now at UTS, which is governed by uh, rules set out, uh, UTS Council sets out rules. Uh, New South Wales government passes rules for this place, and so does the Australian government. So there are three forms of authority that are just on the settler state side right now. This is not a complex or difficult thing to work out, right? We are, we are a federation. We're used to divided forms of sovereignty and authority. So I don't see why Indigenous sovereignty is challenging for us on that basis. It's, it's, it's another layer. It's another conversation and discussion point about how to engage in this country. Yeah, that's really well put. Robin? I don't know that I need to add much more. I think all the answers, that the way other people have responded really, really resonates. For me, I think the one thing I might say is that on self-determination, it is recognised as a human right and it is recognised as a right of First Peoples. And in the last century, <laughs> we had, or maybe it was, I don't know, in the days of ATSIC, the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Commission, what you'll hear about ATSIC, it was a department, a government department, essentially. You'll hear the line, ATSIC was a failure. I was terrible. Can't go back to the days of ATSIC. And like any of our government departments that we might complain a bit about or go, you know, they're not solving things or they didn't give me that grant that I applied for or whatever, it wasn't perfect, but it was an amazing example of us being self-determining and setting the course within the government framework. So nothing is purely, you know, self-determining when we operate in that framework. But we were able to be really self-determining. Largest in... Uh, the Jambana Research Institute is doing a big uh, history project on the, the history of ATSIC. And Pat Turner was saying was the biggest, largest employer of Aboriginal people. Really active in international human rights. All our reparations work, except where it started in collecting institutions, the reparation of our, our human remains, absolutely driven by ATSIC. Housing, business, all these amazing programs that was an expression within the framework, within the bureaucracy, of us being self-determining. Nothing's perfect, you know, without valid criticism. As I said, you know, no government department or no program is without critics, and that's part of a, of a, of a vibrant democracy, that we critique things. But don't believe this rhetoric that, that the one example of self-determination in the form of ATSIC was a failure. Not perfect but there are many fabulous lessons. You know, like I think this generation sitting here, certainly uh, Linda and Tony and myself, we grew up really supported by the fact that there was this amazing institution. I worked for the Human Rights Commission. We worked really closely with ATSIC. It was an amazing place. It grew a lot of our First Nations lawyers, leaders, and if you didn't work for them, you worked with them. So I just want to say that, you know, this myth that ATSIC was, uh, was a failure... Don't buy that. You know, we have been here before. We have established something previously. As I say, not perfect, but it did a lot of good things that since it, it was dismantled have been 
whittled away. A lot of those initiatives were sent out to government departments where people didn't know what they were doing, and we lost a lot of ground with the loss of it. Again, not perfect, but don't believe it was a complete failure. Thanks. So, Tony, you're on the referendum working group. So I'm wanting to come to you to talk to you about the Indigenous voice to Parliament and what it seeks to achieve. It's an interesting question. I think about the voice to Parliament at really three levels. There's the, the mechanical aspect of it. It's, it's the creation of a body that can make representations to Parliament and the executive government. So what that means, if there's a bill that's tabled in relation to superannuation that body might be able to say, well, if you're going to amend the superannuation legislation, you should lower the age of access to pension for Aboriginal people to 65 or to 55, taking into account what we know about our mortality rates and our life expectancy. I know Lyndon's been ca- was campaigning on this for a long time, but for those of you that don't know, you know, most of our people don't get to retire. They work until they die because we don't live long enough to reach the retirement age. So, you know, that's a really important thing. But there might be, uh, alternatively, an application to the Minister for Indigenous Affairs over uh, seeking a protection of a site under Section 10 of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Heritage Protection Act. And so the voice could make a representation to that minister. And that would be minister exercising their role as the, in the executive government under that legislation to determine whether that site ought to be protected. And in the main, it's going to be those sorts of representations that will be made. And, and what will happen is, depending on the strength of the credibility of the voice, on how much value the community places on the voice and, and its, its social licence, I suppose those submissions, those representations may be very powerful, very effective, and it may be that a government may not want to cross the voice on a particular issue. Or if the voice is not able to manage its credibility, it may have very low value and may be disregarded. And that's the risk that we all take in this. There's no guarantees. When they included in the the constitution that you... um, that you couldn't be a, a dual citizen, they didn't know that Section 44 was going to strike out all of these parliamentarians who held dual citizenship. So it's that mechanical process. And what is proposed, and I encourage you all to have a look at the voice design principles. If you just search Google voice design principles, you'll see them. Those principles have been approved by the Federal Cabinet. They've been referred to in the Attorney-General's second reading speech for the Constitution Alteration Bill, the Voice Bill. And what that means is that the High Court can have regard to those materials as as extrinsic materials in terms of uh, interpreting the legislation that is brought into existence to create the voice. So it's a fairly strong uh, requirement that is included in the voice design principles that the representatives be selected by Aboriginal people and that they be selected by local communities and that that the representatives be Aboriginal people. So you'll hear a lot of people saying, oh, well, it could be... They they can just appoint themselves. Tony Abbott can be the special envoy to blackfellas or it could be Jacinta Price expressing her views and and that, that would satisfy the representative nature of it. Well, if you look at the voice design principles, the only way that... Senator Price would get appointed is if she were put there by Walpree people 
or the mob at Yuendamu. And, you know, you can make your own assessment about whether, what the likelihood of that happening is. So there's that mechanical process. Then there's the parliamentary structural element of it. We're adding another element to the parliamentary structure. It's not a third chamber, but it's a part of the process that needs to be built in. So the, the legislation might provide that the voice has two weeks to respond to a bill once tabled and first read in the parliament. Or there might be special provisions for urgent matters where there's a, there's a requirement to respond within 24 hours or 72 hours. And there might be special provisions about how notices to be given in respect of certain matters. So matters that affect the rights of Indigenous peoples, matters in which the Racial Discrimination Act is, is likely to be suspended, matters in which there are uh, impacts on Indigenous land or waters or sites might require uh, have a mandatory requirement. Other matters, such as the Superannuation Act, which are indirect, may not have a... Uh, may, may be something that we have the capacity to make representations with respect to, but government might not be required to consult with us over those things. In general, that's how it's going to work. It's not a veto of Parliament, though. Most of the legal experts that gave uh, evidence in the Joint Select Committee hearings uh, just recently didn't see any problems with how it was going to work. It can be done. The third aspect of the voice is a, is a much bigger structural change. It's, it's the first step in a, a change for this country whereby we find some harmonious accommodation of Indigenous nations. And I say this to people not, as, not by way of threat, but we are here and we are not going away. The Irish maintained their resistance against the British for over 800 years. In Chile, the Mapuche people have been in armed conflict with the Chilean government for decades. What the authors of the Oru Statement, and, and now those of us who are saying, look, this, is, this voice is something that we've got to take, take forward, we're saying, well, this is the first step towards some fairer, more equitable arrangement where we as First Peoples, First Nations, can have a say about our own existence without upsetting the whole apple cart. As I say, this is the first step. There's, there's got to be a truth-telling process and there's got to be treaties, but we are at a, at a structural level, at a broad structural level, we're, we're offering a, an olive branch. We're saying, we don't want to keep fighting with you and seeing our kids locked up and seeing our, our, our people die in jail. We want to find a better way and, and this is the olive branch. This is, this is the first part. That's Dr Tony McAvoy, SC. You also heard from Professor Robin Quiggan, Professor Lyndon Coombs and Dr Harry Hobbs, joined by the Honourable Professor Verity Firth. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing you know, respecting the world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well.
This week on Speaking Out, a panel of experts explore the implications of constitutional reform. A referendum will be held later this year in a bid to enshrine an Indigenous voice to Parliament. But is constitutional change necessary and is an advisory body the best way forward? More from the conversation shortly, but right now, some music from Yorta Yorta singer-songwriter, the late Uncle Jimmy Little. Started out when I was cleaning dishes And the phone rang in the hall I was drawn to it against my wishes Ugly memories of the wall I didn't count on mass destruction When I saw you It was the way I made you seen such mass destruction till I saw you it was the way I made you feel went to town past the old cafe that existed to service your highway and what they were saying for all these years was true they never were the good old I didn't count on this destruction when I saw you was the way I made you feel. I hadn't seen such mass destruction till I saw you was the way
Jimmy Little there with The Way I Made You Feel. Let's return now to the recent panel discussion, Voice Treaty Truth. It was held during Reconciliation Week at the University of Technology, Sydney, and we pick things up with Barrister Dr Tony McAvoy, SC. The reasons for having a voice to Parliament, from my perspective, really centre upon the ability to change the way government interacts with us. During my day job, I am involved in native title matters, negotiations with government all of the time. And I know from the work that I've done that government is created to maintain its own existence and its own power. It's not a beast that shares power. It's not designed to share power. And no, no matter where I've worked, everybody's said, but we want to we make the decisions for ourselves. We want to... We want to um, be able to look after our country ourselves, And government just can't bring itself to do it. And so where it's most stark for me is in this uh, idea of jointly managed national parks. What happens is that the national parks and wildlife services all around the country refuse to hand over the decision-making power to the traditional owners. And the traditional owners end up being on an advisory panel and have no budgetary control and have no, no control over, their, over the national park. Even though they desperately say, we can manage this better than you. Government cannot on its own do that because it's not designed to do that. But if we've got a voice that can monitor and make comment and hold to account the government and say, you have to learn how to divest power to our communities, then I think we've got a real chance of seeing that happen. Because the way it's going at the moment can't go on. The rates of people being incarcerated are increasing, notwithstanding the closing the gap process, notwithstanding the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. We can't keep going down this path. We've got to get to a position where we're in some control. And so I think, for me, the capacity of the voice to be able to fill that role is critical. Yes, it will have a, have a function in uh, uh, ensuring that the treaty process is, is right, but every Indigenous land use agreement with government which settles a native title claim the native title group has to be armed with lawyers the whole time from that day forward because they've got, to, they've got to battle against the government to maintain the rights that they've been able to secure in the agreement. That's the reality of it. And unless you've got a body in there in government saying, you can't keep doing it this way, you've got to change. You've got to learn how to divest power. Without that, I don't think we're going to see any change because government has consistently demonstrated that it cannot make decisions for us which are to our benefit. And the way it plays out is that government has to make a whole range of decisions. 
And usually those with the loudest voice and the squeakiest wheel and the most power and the most connected end up getting their preferred outcome. And I've been in government. Lyndon and I worked in government together. What happens is somewhere along that path, the Indigenous people's view gets pushed out of the way and everybody else's concerns make the final decision. And we see it in the negotiations around amendment of the Native Title Act. We have our say, but in the end, it's a negotiation between the government and the mining companies about what the Native Title Act looks like. And so this absence of clout, this absence of political access, I think will in part, it's not going to be a panacea, but will in part be remedied by a voice to parliament. So one of the arguments I've heard from uh, the no sort of campaign is treaty first. And I'm sympathetic to that. We, we work on treaty in Jambana. It sort of goes, and the reason that I'm sympathetic is it goes to Tony's point of no matter how smart we are, how uh, strategic we are, how well organised, how passionate we are, we're disempowered. And I'm just sick of getting beat. Sick of getting beat, not because they're better than us, but because they have more power than us. And so I really get the no vote from that perspective. And I think it's also important to note that there's sort of two camps, at least to my view, within the no camp. And there's, you know, Indigenous people who have genuine concerns. They, they do not trust this government. They don't trust any government to give full effect to what people are saying. The yes case, of course, and I agree with what Lyndon's saying about the maybe more progressive left, progressive no case about treaty first. I think on the the other side of the no case, I'd say that, you know, at it, taking it at its highest, and I don't agree with it, I think it's wrong, and but I think it's what Robin was talking about right at the start. Uh, taking it at its highest, the, the other no case would be does this divide us on the basis of race? And I think it, the answer is clearly no, and I'll explain why in a moment, but I think that is the concern that a lot of people have because they're, you know, we're very lucky to live in a country where equality is prized, right? We are all equal. That wasn't the case for many, many years, as Robin, Tony and Lyndon can attest, right? This is certainly not the case of what it has been. And so people might be concerned, does this give special rights to one group of Australians? But as Robin was saying right at the start, it's not a racial question. It's a question about peoples. Uh, and it's not a recognition that there are different races or one group has special rights. It's a recognition that there is a group of Australians, the first Australians, first peoples, who have a 65,000-year continuing connection to country here. Uh, and they are not part of our constitution. They're not part of our country at the moment. They are, as uh, Tony and Lyndon were saying, essentially it's a, it's a demographic minority of 3% of the population who will routinely lose in democratic debates and democratic votes because of their demographics. And so this is, goes some way to trying to fix up the, that, that process, the impossibility of a democratic society when you have one group of Australians who are very different for very unique and distinctive reasons who will routinely lose in political battles. So that's one part of it. The other part I would say is that the voice doesn't grant special rights to anyone. The voice, as Tony was saying right at the start, it's an opportunity to speak to parliament and to government, to make representations. We can all do that. I made a submission to the Parliamentary Committee report into this. I made a representation to Parliament. We can do this routinely. We all do this at different times. So this is not any special right. This doesn't take away my right to do that. So at its highest, there's a concern about equality, but I think it misunderstands the argument. It's about peoples, and it doesn't take away anyone's rights. Can I just add on the no question? From a position of trying to analyse the electorate, 
it's clear that there's probably 15 to 20% who are just straight out no who uh, have a particular view about life in Australia and that any rights we had were, were disappeared when um, the British arrived. And then they're not going to change their view. And then there's 30 or 40% who are undecided. And what the no campaigns have been doing is, is playing to the fears of those people and putting out as many uh, uh, different arguments as they can to try and hook individuals and, and tap into their fear. And um, we know, we know that in Australia, non-First Nations people have a bias towards First Nations people. There's a, there was a very good study that came out of uh, ANU um, in 2019 to the effect that three out of four Australians have a negative, unconscious or implicit bias against Aboriginal people. And that is a product of the way in which this country was settled. The, 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 we were subjected to violence and there's a conspiracy of silence about that and we were treated as second class in order to facilitate our dispossession. And that's really deeply embedded in the society. And, and many people are able to rationalise that and, and move beyond it and, and uh, act appropriately. And, and, it's, and it's all of you who are here, mm. speaking to your friends and your family and, and not allowing the misinformation that's purposely designed to tr the trigger fear to grab hold. Thank you. And I'm going to... Oh, well, I'm about to come to you, Robin, but you should add to that point. I just, I just wanted to add that I think the fact that um, when we listen to the things that have been outlined mm. about... Particularly, I'm reflecting on Tony's comments about government's inability to accommodate our voice in a really... Our, our ways of seeing the world and to really hear and honour that. I think that where our colleagues, our brothers and sisters, are sceptical, not trusting... I think that the, the community just needs to be able to hold that space with us and know that this is a proposition. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like and many of us will be standing there going, we don't believe you, we don't trust you. So I think it's OK and that is our right and that is OK for people to hold what I feel is this position that Tony's just described too of the, this racist position that is largely mobilised for power and in some ways, I think, just a way to step forward into power on our backs, as is not uncommon. But where we are worried and holding, you know, some scepticism, I think the rest of the community just has to say, that's OK, and I'm going to make up my own mind. And I will know that some of our, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander brothers and sisters are worried. So let's be the complex society that we are and just be OK withholding that, the different views. Young LGBTIQ plus people were impacted by the same-sex marriage debate. How do we protect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children during the referendum debate? And the reason I was going to go to you on that was because that's something we've also been talking about at the university, about cultural load and about just creating a safe space so that, that it doesn't... I'm sure Tony can already tell us about the nasty social media environment, but that it doesn't just really have an unfair and horrific toll on people. I think the truth is it just will. 
my my dear cousin is in the is is joining us today. She got an invitation to go to lunch with. I hope you, can I tell this story with a an emailed list of questions that the host would like to ask her about, including her family's view on the voice, her view on the voice, what other Aboriginal people... Like this list of questions as part of a lunch invitation. That's not the question about children. But it is impacting on us. And it, I think we need to be good allies, watch out for our people, don't stand by while someone just drills someone with questions and they don't want to answer them. We might want to talk about how we're going today, not necessarily what our view on the voice is or what our family's view on the voice is. And maybe we will, but we'll make that clear. You know, we'll tell you if we want to talk about it. You know, we won't be backward and coming forward if we want to talk about it. But not everybody wants to talk about it. Not everybody wants to talk about it all the time. Our kids don't necessarily know what the answers are. And we need to be mindful of that and careful about that. I was at lunch yesterday with two women who've since married, and they said, it was just hellish for us. We'd walk into the local golf club and they'd go, here's our lesbians, here's our lesbian friends. You know, are you getting married? And just this kind of constant scrutiny. So I think while it's really important for us all to talk about this, to educate ourselves, to watch what's going on, we also do need to be you know, mindful and careful of each other in this, in this time and watch out for our young ones who, who will be perhaps asked things that you know, they're just not in a position to, to answer. Thanks. At a personal level, it's very different for all of us who are in this space where we are constantly asked to speak. I'm a director on the Aboriginal Legal Service in New South Wales. I was at a board meeting Thursday and Friday. We passed a resolution and had a lengthy discussion about support of the voice um, we passed a, a resolution in support of the voice at the board meeting. On Saturday, I spoke via Zoom at a, an event in Darwin on the voice, and I'm here today. And the, re the next few months looks pretty much the same. So there's a big toll on all of us, but it's something that has to be done. And, uh, I, and you know, I'm up for it, and um, I'll continue to do it. But us here in the city, we only see a muted form of, the, uh, of what's going on. People I know in country Queensland uh, are being abused in public places by rednecks in a way that hasn't happened in the past. And I think it says uh, to me is that we've got a fair way to go yet and it's going gonna, it's gonna to get uglier before it gets better. And to the extent that uh, we have uh, allies, those allies need to uh, stand up at the appropriate times. If you see that sort of behaviour, be brave. Uh, because, like Lyndon, um, even though the voice is an, a very important structural element, the way in which my people secure our future is through some set of uh, agreed rules about how we all operate on my country. And that's the treaty process. That's interesting. So you're really saying that... To the, the, the hub of the question is, do we then proceed with treaty and truth? And you're saying it actually puts treaty and truth at risk. It does. It, it does. Absolutely puts the long-term uh, viability, political viability of treaty and truth at risk. I, I have every belief that the, that the federal government will proceed with the Makarrata Commission. Mm -hmm. Uh, whether they commence that before the referendum or after the referendum, I don't know. But, but there's money in the budget for it. It's part of their election platform. I'm, I'm certain that they will do it. But the problem will be how, how a no vote will be used by future coalition governments. It's a very real 
very real issue. If we think about the the vehemence with which they've approached this, their response to this referendum, we know that that they uh, will do uh, all sorts of things in order to avoid having to be answerable to Aboriginal people. I was just going to say quickly that um, I think as black people we need to try to find value in the process regardless of the outcome. So, you know, we've been disappointed many, many times um, along these and other lines. But um, so one of the key things for me and what I was talking about before was how we as black people, as black nations, talk and negotiate with each other. And the voice is something that um, there's disagreement about. People pretty much agree with everything. You know, my views are very consistent with they, they're saying no. And I think that can be a really valuable thing about how we respect each other during that process. And it's good practice for me um, for treaty, really, um, because that's where we, we want to get to. And so with all these processes that are going on, if we find that value in the process and the outcome will be what it will be, and I, I agree with Robin that it's, you know, it'll be business as usual, we'll, we'll get back to doing the things that we do, still working towards treaty and other things, but um, there, there's an opportunity in the process so that we're not just sort of left, um, you know, at the whim of the, the majority of people for a decision on the referendum. One thing I think people aren't really aware of is that every government in Australia except Western Australia has committed to a treaty process. Mm. So every single state and territory and Commonwealth government except for WA has committed to a treaty process. Um, my fear, drawing on from what Tony was saying, is that because it's going to be a state-wide vote, there'll be some governments who, where a no vote might succeed and the impetus for treaty in those states will dissipate immediately because the government will say, well, there's no votes in this and we need votes to get into power next time. Mm. Uh, and so even if the federal government is still committed uh, and even if things continue for a little bit longer at that stage and, and they will have a lot of momentum in themselves and, and driving the process, I think the momentum of the energy it's in certain places around the country will fall apart. Mm. Mm. So we're nearing time, but there's a last question. There's another question from the audience which is similar to one that I want to ask. Um, and this really is about, you know, the nature of all of Australia voting in a constitutional referendum when, as we've already described, a lot of people don't even know what the constitution is and whether or not we've got the right to bear arms, as Harry um, said before. So the question from the audience is, how can we better cut through the complexities of this such that the average Australian can understand and make an educated vote in the referendum? One of the things I've said to people is, wouldn't you like a parliament and an executive that has the best advice possible when they're making laws and policies for this country, wouldn't you like to have something that, you know, somebody that gives them the, the absolute best advice possible from the people on the ground, from the people at community level to the people who are our doctors, lawyers, architects, social policy people, all the people that we have who can give really expert advice. Wouldn't you like that? Wouldn't that be a better way to do business in government? The thing I, I do say also that is um, sometimes maybe complex for people is that we do have a human right. It is a human right of all peoples of effective participation in matters that affect us. It's just the implementation of a human right. Thank you. Lyndon. Yeah, um, I don't want to end on a cynical <laughs> note, but I think there's a lot of people out there um, looking for a palatable reason to vote no. And it's been sort of demonstrated, I think, with previous referenda 
and, and certainly a, a progressive issue like this is a really hard one to, to get over. Um, I remember many years ago um, I was speaking to a woman who was involved in the no case for the Republic and um, the takeaway message from her was running a no case on a referendum in Australia is money for jam. She said, it's the easiest job I ever had. And so that, without being too cynical about it, it is a difficult thing to do. And like Tony said, the, the way on that is, you know, the full court press, talking to people, getting organisations, industries, sectors, sports. Um, it's full court press to overcome that because it really is difficult. Yeah, I agree with that. Again, it's sort of, if you have limited knowledge about what is in the Constitution, let alone what it means and what it is, it's much easier to say, well, I don't know, I'm just going to vote no. Uh, so a compulsory election, a compulsory referendum vote, and it is compulsory, we're all going to have to vote, does make the easier for the no case. And the history in Australia says that there have been eight successful referendums and of, out of 44 attempts. So uh, it is hard. There's only Labor Party has put up 25 referendums and has got one out of the 25. Uh, so it is very difficult to win a referendum. Um, and so we do need people to educate themselves, to find out information, and I think the, and then talk to friends and family and people you might not talk to about these things more generally. You know, I'm, I'm sort of been doing a lot of these talks recently. I gave one to my hockey club the other day, right, just because I think, well, these people I play hockey with, I don't know anything about them, but I see them every week. I should tell them about this stuff, and they'll tell their friends. So it's little bits like that, and I think... Um, I know a lot of people say, oh, I want more detail. There is detail out there, but I do think, as Robin said, it's important to stick to the principle. This is just a, a question about whether we think Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples should have a say over the laws and policies that affect them. Yeah. I think it's pretty straightforward. So we've got three minutes left. I'm just going to go back up the line, starting with you, Harry. Um, and really, you can say whatever you want to say at the end of the um, moment. Tell your truth to the audience. Um, but if you do have some good recommendations for materials people could pursue to get to know things more or how to sign up if they're interested in volunteering, whatever, could you provide that information too? Starting with you, Harry. Uh, yeah, there's a lot out there. And I think, uh, I know the Uluru Dialogues team, which is based out of UNSW, they have a yarning session every week. And it's open to every single person in Australia. The Zoom link is available. You type in Uluru Dialogues yarning session. And uh, you've got people like Megan Davis and Pat Anderson who will talk to you about what the voice means and how it will work. Uh, so that's pretty pretty easy and pretty useful way to get some information about it. There's also lots of um, uh, university websites that do things like this. I know UTS are doing things. We're putting a video together. Uh, the ANU First Nations portfolio has, a, uh, I think, 11 or 12 questions, responses to common concerns about the voice. And so this, I think, is particularly useful to talk to people who might be generally interested in it but not really know anything about it. And it's questions like... And answers to uh, questions like, why do we need a voice if there are 11 Indigenous peoples in Parliament already? Um, why do we need a voice if, if Indigenous peoples uh, can already speak to government in different ways? Questions like this. Uh, will this be special rights to one group of people? Uh, and the answers are pretty straightforward. They're just about a paragraph and a half. Uh, they give you really helpful information if you want to talk to friends and family about this. Um, I'll just steal Robin's of um, holding the space. And what I said before about um, respectful uh, conversations, particularly between uh, black people, uh, and learning sort of how to disagree with each other on, on some things, but moving forward on so much other work that's left to be done, that would be mine. In terms of um, material that I think is essential reading, I direct you again to the voice design principles. You can get those off of the um, Uluru Dialogue website or the voice website that NIAA has. 
um, read them because they answer most of the questions about the structural, the detail, and when people throw up, uh, you know, issues about lack of representation or or the various challenges people uh, say uh, about the model or the absence of a model are are answered in that document. I, I don't know what else to say. Um, Watch Charlie's Country. Uh, I, I watched that movie the other day. Uh, Gulpalil. Awesome movie. Speaks to many of the things that we're talking about here. Thank you. That's Barrister Dr Tony McAvoy, SC. You also heard from Pro Vice-Chancellor, Indigenous Leadership and Engagement, Professor Robin Quiggan, Industry Professor and Director of Research at the Jumbana Institute, Professor Lyndon Coombs, Constitutional and Human Rights Lawyer, Dr Harry Hobbs, and Pro Vice-Chancellor, Social Justice and Inclusion at UTS, Professor Verity Firth. They were speaking last month at a panel discussion hosted by the Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion and the Jumbana Institute. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we bring you more stories from Indigenous Australia. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and Manel Creed and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt.